I want to ask the rest of you to open your Bibles to Ephesians 1. You can do so with great care and concern in light of what you're about ready to open and about what we're ready to read because Ephesians 1 is so awesome. Glad to see that the elect are here tonight. had little opportunity today just to reflect on how thankful I am for OBC and its ministry in my life. Just thinking about life and thinking about good things, bad things, hard things, easy things. And I'm thankful for a church. I'm thankful for the church in my life. And I'm thankful for the ministry it has to me. And I hope you think about things like that sometimes. I'm thankful to even here tonight we're singing about sober things, but they're real things and uh, about our great Redeemer Christ. And it's good. It's right. It's helpful. Okay, Ephesians 1. Uh, I'd like to draw your attention to verses 9 to 11, and this will be our introduction for tonight. And uh, I, it's so awesome. Let's pay attention to the weightiness of every word. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 9 says this, Making known to us the mystery of His will according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth, in Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. Tempted to read it again. We're just going to read it one time. Therefore. Therefore. And here's a great quotation. Not as good as that quotation. But a great quotation explaining and, and unpacking that great Ephesians 1 statement. This is from Dennis Johnson in his book, Him We Proclaim. In light of Ephesians 1. At the most general level, we are therefore justified in concluding that no event of history is adequately interpreted apart from its relation to the cosmic agenda of God. Centered in the Lordship of Christ. This is even more obvious with respect to the events of redemptive history recorded in Scripture. And thus we can also recognize still at a very general abstract level, listen to this, that no text of Scripture is adequately understood, explained or applied unless it is somehow related to God's cosmic plan. End of quotation, big quotation, big quotation from Scripture, big quotation from a theologian. His point is, the point that we've been trying to make, and I've been trying to make during our Drama of Redemption series, if God has a plan that has existed since eternity past, and He has, that's Ephesians 1, and He works all things after the counsel of His will, that's what it says in Ephesians 1, and central to all of His grand purpose, first and foremost, central to the whole thing, 
is none other than Christ Jesus Himself, which is what Ephesians 1 is teaching. Before time begins, it's going to be all about Christ, and He will reconcile all things. It will all relate to Him, and God works all things after the counsel of His will. Dennis Johnson then is making the point. It would only make sense. It demands our attention. It demands our notice that everything in history would somehow be related to Christ and His plan of redemption. And more specifically, more obviously, Dennis Johnson is saying, certainly, if everything in history is related to that, somehow, certainly everything in the Bible's history is related to that somehow. Old Testament, New Testament. If I can only communicate that to you, I think I've at least given you a good nudge. Okay? To go back again to Ephesians 1. This, this eternal, all-inclusive, all-encompassing plan centering on Christ. It's been a plan since before time begins. It unfolds. It is unfolding. It will climactically come to climax, if you will, to use the double. When Christ returns, somehow everything's related to Him. That's Dennis Johnson's therefore. I'll add the therefore, which is really his therefore. Therefore, we should read our Bible like that. We should read our lives like that, but we should certainly read our Bibles like that. Doesn't mean Jesus is somehow, you know, hidden under every rock in every syllable or vowel pointing of the Hebrew text, but somehow it's got to be related to Him because what God is doing in this world is all related to Him. And if that just helps us a little bit, I think we're helped a lot. Not to mention, in our, not just reading the Bible, but when we read our lives and we look at our lives, that somehow everything that happens in our lives is related to that, that cosmic event that will be solved and restored with the, with the coming of Christ. That is really what biblical theology is all about. Okay, So when someone talks about biblical theology, they don't just mean theology that is good. Uh, it's actually a study. Like we have systematic theology. We have biblical theology. And the idea is um, how, how it all fits together, how it's all part of a drama. That's why we've been calling this the drama of redemption. We could have, if we were uh, in an institution more like an um, academic institution, we could say this has been a biblical theology class how it's all related and how it all unfolds and and how it all comes together centrally, ultimately, in none other than Christ. And so that's what we've been talking about on Sunday nights. Really, it's another way of saying we're looking at the big picture. And tonight we're going to wrap up the big picture, final Sunday night until summer is over. And uh, the big picture drama of redemption could be summarized with four words, a four-word paradigm. Okay, Do you think the person who texted it to me today was cheating or not? Well, since he was the only one that got the answer right, I think Dallas Foch has to get the, the, the free prize. So, uh, anyway, I, if other people would have gotten it, I would have, I would have said it was favoritism uh, because he had my phone number, and maybe not everybody did. Um, but the four words that really help us to see the, the chapters, if you will, um, the, the four-word paradigm that we're going to follow tonight that, that I didn't come up with and Dennis Johnson didn't come up with, um, but believers have used sometimes different words, but generally these three words, the, the four-word paradigm um, is creation, fall, redemption, and the hard one is number four, consummation. Okay, 
So the four-word paradigm for understanding the whole thing, and some of you gave me other answers, and they were good answers. Jesus loves you too. <laughs> you gave me good answers. I heard there was good discussion, but there's creation. Then you have fall, then you have redemption, then you have consummation. And so I want to talk about those four tonight. Um, I've never plagiarized a sermon in my life. Um, I don't think I've even plagiarized a sermon outline. If I had, I would have said, here's where the outline came from. Um, But tonight I'm going to make sure I take Dennis Johnson's outline because it's so helpful. And we're going to talk about those four um, chapters, those four pillars, if you will. Um, Just so you know where it's coming from. It's coming from him and his book, Christ Christ. Him We Proclaim. Him We Proclaim is the name of the book. And for that matter, I'm out of my comfort zone. This will be more of a lecture than it will be a sermon uh, because I really, really, within 10 pages, I really like the way he summarizes this. And so uh, we'll interact with several quotations that come from Dennis Johnson's book on this matter. But once again, to underscore, believers have been looking at at all of Scripture through this kind of paradigm for a long time. Maybe you wouldn't call it consummation. Maybe you'd call it something else. Um, but the idea would be God made the world. Yes. And by the way, the, 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 the crowning point of his creation would be creating men and women in his image. And so we've got creation. And then we have fall. So we have the, the image is marred. The image is contaminated. It's perverted. Then we have redemption in Christ who comes as none other than the last Adam so that that image would be redeemed, if you will. The humans would be redeemed. And then you have consummation where it all becomes actualized, return of Christ, entering into the fullness, um, glorification, would be the idea. So I'll probably be more of, of a lecturer than a preacher, uh, more of a, uh, a class than it would be a sermon, but I think it's going to be worth it. Um, these are things I've been wanting to share for a long time um, from that particular book that I think will help you read your Bible better and understand the big picture, picture better. So number one, let's look at creation. Creation. Um, and specifically creation of the, of the divine image. Um, because when you see God or you hear God, we'll go to Genesis 1 if you want to go ahead and turn there. When you hear God pronouncing everything good in His creation, there actually is the, the apex, there actually is the high point, because He only makes human beings in His image. And there's a lot more, there, there's more weight given there, and that's what's going to need to be redeemed in the long run. So let's look at creation. Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 to 27. And as I've been saying all along, I want you to get this, and maybe you get this so you could teach it better than I could, but I want you to get it because I want you to understand the big paradigm well enough so you can talk about it even casually with other people so that you can give the big picture to people who are not biblically literate. And you can understand the major four categories so that you can uh, really remember any of the ca- all of the categories in any one given passage. So, let's see creation, specifically divine image bestowed, beginning in verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. 27. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. So right there, can you not see that human beings are unique? Pretty obvious, right? 
We're different from the rest of creation. The, the very good creation is very good, but there's something unique about human beings. And then when we look even closer at Genesis, there are other little indicators, markers that, that were, were unique. For example, if you turn over to Genesis chapter 3, you see another sign of uniqueness because what Adam and Eve do adversely affects the whole creation. Well, that shows that they were unique to have that impact. They sinned and it led to bad things, not just for them. Yeah, they, they, they had a unique um, stature, a unique role. Verse 17 says, and, and to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground. Notice, because you did this, Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. And typically we don't stop to think. Even that shows us something about the uniqueness of God creating men and women as image bearers. So that when they acted wrongly, it affected the whole world. That's how unique we were created. It's a special thing for human beings to be made in the image of God. Now, the question that comes next would be, as we're going to dig in a little bit, what did that entail? What did it mean for Adam and Eve to be made in the image of God? And we could say, well, to have dominion, that's God-like. I, I always say that as one of the characteristics. And there are other ones we could see from the text. But here's something perhaps you haven't done, and that's, Go to the New Testament. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to go to the New Testament and see what Christ fixes, if you will, in redemption. Even though we're not to redemption yet. What He restores. So that we can have a better understanding of what was there to begin with before the fall. So we're doing a little study in anthropology. A little study in being made in the image of God. Because I want us to see how good it was and how important it was so that when we see the fall, we can see how bad that was. So when we see redemption, we can see how great Christ is. Consummation, how great Christ is. Follow me or not. I don't think I could say it all again. But it came out okay, I think, the first time. How about Colossians chapter 3 and Ephesians chapter 4? So as you're turning to Colossians 3 and Ephesians 4, we're utilizing these New Testament passages, looking at what Christ restored so that we can then read the Old Testament and have a better understanding of what was there all along. Because it doesn't give us a lot of detail. It tells us a few things, but it doesn't give us a lot of detail. But there are some good clues um, in these two passages. So let's look at the Colossians text first. And in Colossians 3.10, it says, and have put on the new self, it's talking to Christians who are in Christ, which is being renewed in knowledge. That's the word I highlighted and underlined. I want to draw your attention to first. Renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. And so Christians from a for a long time now have been doing what we're doing and saying, there was something unique about Adam and Eve's knowledge. There was something uniquely godlike in their knowledge that made them different from the rest of creation. It's restored in Christ. It was forfeited to one degree because of the fall, but there was something unique about Adam's knowledge. 
Then let's go to Ephesians. We'll come back to the knowledge idea. Then let's go to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 24. And, and see a similar kind of passage. Adam had a unique kind of knowledge because he was made in the image of God, we see first of all. And then in Ephesians 4.24, it says, And to put on the new self, again, Christians in Christ, created after the likeness of God, this is image of God kind of stuff, in true righteousness. Oh, there's the next word I really wanted you to notice. In true righteousness, it's a restored righteousness, and holiness, it's a restored kind of holiness. And so now Christians for a long time before us have identified those as, as some of the key aspects in understanding creation. The crown of creation. Human beings. They had a unique kind of knowledge, unique kind of righteousness, a unique kind of holiness. Let's take them one at a time before we move on to the next phase. Let's consider, because once again, just so you're following me, it's good to see these things as they were in their goodness so that we can see how bad it was to have them forfeited and then we can see what Christ needs to do and what He did in redemption and to see them fully restored for people like you and people like me in consummation. This is no easy task. You have to actually pay attention. This is good. Let's think about righteousness. How would Adam and Eve been righteous? Well, we know that word is related to the word justice or fairness. It's related to law. Seems like it would have been related to their dominion. And again, here we're doing some, some careful um, investigation, following some clues. We want to be careful about this because the Bible doesn't spell it out. But in one way or another, Adam and Eve were in a state of righteousness. So that would have affected, no, no doubt, their relationship to God as far as their relationship to Him and what He would say. But if they were going to have dominion, there's going to be a righteous, there's going to be a fairness, there's going to be a justice that would actually be exercised by them. I think it would be fair to say, and other Christians before us have said, yep, that seems to be what was going on there. Or how about the knowledge that's been restored in Christ, but would have been there before it was broken in the good creation, there was a knowledge. And here's where I'm going I'm to rely upon Dennis Johnson. And I'll read as clear as I can, and at an interestingly enough level as is I'm capable of. The tree, this is the knowledge that was there beforehand. The tree and the test focused on the issue of knowledge, its source and its criterion. I think this is fascinating. As the temptation account will show, God's prohibition of a single tree in the garden called Adam and Eve to trust God as their source of knowledge. With them so far? They had to trust God as their source of knowledge. Above his deceptive rival, they had to trust God more than his deceptive rival and even their own senses. They had to have a knowledge that they trusted God for more than they would trust Satan for, more than they would even trust their own senses for. Their knowledge was dependent on God. Which perceived the tree, their own senses that is, 
their own senses, perceived the tree not as posing the threat of death, as God had said in chapter 2, verse 17. Their perception was that it's good for food, a delight to the eyes, and to be desired to make one wise, chapter 3, verse 6. Their knowledge was a dependent upon God knowledge. Johnson goes on to say, prior to that tragic act of knowledge independence, however, we see evidence of Adam's true knowledge, reflective of his Creator, in his naming the animals, chapter 2, verses 19 to 20. And in the words by which he identifies the companion provided for him, chapter 2, verse 23. He's, he's using knowledge and he's naming the animals, knowledgeably, godlike. He's giving his wife a name, knowledgeably, godlike, dependent upon God. As God exerted his authority and expressed his truth, creating and defining his creatures through his spoken words, so Adam exhibited intelligence and exercised his delegated authority through his words. Now, I don't know about you, but while it was possible to do, I just haven't come up with that kind of insight on my own. (laughs) And I think it is helpful. There was something about Adam and Eve's knowledge that was unique and godlike. And it was dependent upon God. But it's not going to stay that way. Now, what about holiness? What about their holiness that Christ restores after the fall, but beforehand? Again, I'm going to quote Johnson, carefully, hopefully, interestingly. Later in redemptive history, holiness would characterize the tabernacle and temple, sanctuaries that were consecrated and set apart as the place of meeting between the Lord and His people because the Lord Himself is supremely holy, Isaiah 6 set apart from His creation in His infinite majesty and purity, access to His presence, demanded holiness, as was dramatically demonstrated in all of the ceremonies, regulations, guarding the sanctuary from defilement and those who were defiled from the consuming holiness of God. In other words, let me come up for breath. When we look at sanctuary in the Old Testament, when we look at tabernacle, when we look at temple, we look at priests, we see something, right, of the holiness of God. That He's separate, that there is not to be any defilement entering in. One of the roles of the priest was to make sure that that didn't happen, to guard the tabernacle, to guard the temple, to guard the holiness. When we read about those things in the book of Leviticus and elsewhere, we say, sanctuary is holy. It's to be guarded, it's to be protected. Because God is holy and that's where you meet with God and have a relationship with God in a, in a unique formal way. With me? With Johnson? <laughs> and here's where he goes connecting some dots for us that I think is worth me reading. He takes what we learn about God's holiness in Tabernacle Temple and he says, let's take that information and go back to pre-fall garden." Creation, good creation where God is holy. See if we can learn something. Again, hang in there. He says, and others have as well, Eden itself was a sanctuary. Think holy place. To be guarded. 
And Adam was to be the guardian of its holiness. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. Genesis 2.15. He's got a responsibility to keep the garden. The verb keep, shamar, will appear again in Genesis 3.24 when God places cherubim with a flaming sword at the garden's entrance to guard, to shamar the way to the tree of life. Adam, keep the garden. Another way of saying, Adam, guard the garden. Same word that is given to the angelic being to guard the tree. Protect it. Don't let people come here who ought not be coming here. When the original guardian of the holiness of God's meeting place failed, that is Adam, and God's presence caused him terror rather than delight, Genesis 3.8, cherubim were stationed to forbid the fallen priest protector entrance into the presence of the holy king. I don't know about you, but I'm going, this is interesting. First time I ever thought about these things, reading from a different author, I, I said, I, I, don't, I don't know. And then I'm reading it in another author, and another author, and another author, and then I'm starting to say, why hasn't anybody pointed this stuff out to me before? Why haven't I learned biblical theology before? Not playing fast and loose with things. Guard, guard. This is why last time we were together on a Sunday night, whether you're here or not, I said, what should have Adam done when the serpent came? Should have stomped on his head. That's what he should have done. Because that, by the way, is what the last Adam, Jesus, will do and in effect has done. And at the end of the book of Romans, it says that we do that because we're united to Christ. Because we're in Him in the last Adam. Image of God in creation is super important. And that's what needs to be restored once it's broken. The crown and glory of God's creation, human beings, we've got to understand that if we're going to understand the rest of the Bible. And so hopefully we're at least understanding it better. Let's move on now to number two. Let's talk about fall. Let's talk about fall. And if you want a subcategory for fall relating to the divine image, let's call it the divine image defaced. The divine image defaced. Again, I don't want to apologize for being a lecturer, but I'm apologizing for being a lecturer. I'm a preacher at heart, and uh, for me to look down all the time drives me crazy. Um, Again, from him we proclaim about the fall. Can't think of a better way to make this simple and yet deep and profound, so I'll just quote. The temptation itself constituted a challenge to and a violation of truth, authority, and relationship. Hmm, how so? Let's ask that question. The evil one, speaking through the serpent, invited God's vice-regents, Adam and Eve, to establish themselves as independent authorities. 
You see? Usurping the right of God to define good from evil, right? God defines good from evil. And now Adam and Eve are invited to define good from evil themselves. To play God, if you will. He contradicted God's declaration of truth, denying the death sanction that God had threatened for disobedience. That's chapter 3, verse 4. He denies what God says. The tempter promised a knowledge that would make creatures, quote, like their creator, not as image bearers, but according to chapter 3, verse 5, as, as equals. Consequently, Eve set aside the way of knowing by hearing and heeding the voice of her maker. That's how she was supposed to know, by hearing God and and. Heeding God, her maker, that's how she was supposed to know things. And sought knowledge instead from the tongue of the deceiver. And again, chapter 3, verse 6, and she sought knowledge by her own perception. Isn't that interesting? The fall tied to knowledge from the deceiver and knowledge from her own intuition, her own perception, instead of having knowledge based upon what God says. And she's not even fallen. Satan even assaulted Adam and Eve's relationship with God by planting in their mind suspicion of God's motives for forbidding the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in chapter 3, verse 5. And so, in the fall, while the image of God is still there, it's marred, it's perverted, it's corrupted. We know that it's still there because of chapter 9 with capital punishment. James also talks about being made in the image of God even post-fall. But we have to know that we went from very good, crowning achievement, human beings made in the image of God, to these human beings playing God themselves. And what came as a result was disastrous. Romans chapter 8 links the, the, the whole creation being broken because of what they did. So once again, you can understand your Bible. Why all the sin? Why all the wars? Why all the conflicts? Why all the difficulties? Why all the corruption? And then you can understand the world you live in. Why do all these things happen? Why all the pain? Why all the brokenness? You know the answer. You know the answer. You know the answer. You know the answer. Even back in Genesis, we don't have to go to Romans chapter 8, even back in Genesis chapter 3. Adam, because you did this, this is what will happen to the ground. This is what will happen, and it will plague the whole world. Can't understand the Bible if you don't understand the fall. Can't understand what grieves you most, and what breaks your heart, and what causes you pain. If you don't understand the fall, that we're all in Adam, as Paul would elaborate in Romans chapter 5, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. It doesn't take the pain away, right? It doesn't make life easy. But we do understand. We, we, we do understand, and, and we need to understand the fall, or we'll never understand redemption. We'll never understand consummation. Maybe one of the biggest issues, right? The people you talk to, I'm going to go off on a tangent just for a second. Um, the people you talk to that don't even understand the gospel, that don't understand God and His fairness and what He does and what He doesn't do and how things work and how things don't work, pain and suffering, the fall helps us understand. doesn't make us jovial, but we at least understand. And again, let me, let me encourage you to be a help um, 
not a know-it-all, but somebody who can actually give a reasonable answer of why the pain so you can have a reasonable and good answer why the redemption and let's go further consummation which means that's the time when there won't be any pain you have the answer and I have the answer it's, it's tied to Christ so pollution ensues and it's chaotic and it's catastrophic and it's cosmic and it's awful but let's move on to number three redemption redemption we have new creation begun divine image restored in redemption in Christ. Continuing on. As implied by the Apostle in Colossians 3 and Ephesians 4, one fruitful way of viewing God's history-long redemptive project is in terms of the new creation of the human race in the image of God. That's what we've been doing. Focusing on that aspect. Image of God restoration. Christ, the image of God, and the last Adam... 1 Corinthians 15, is not surprisingly the pivot point of this new creation. Once again, it's so crucial that we remember he's the last Adam. And there are only two. First Adam, last Adam. I mean, if you can understand that, you can understand a whole lot in the Bible. So if I can understand first Adam in Genesis, last Adam in 1 Corinthians 15, and the last Adam is the Redeemer who does the right things that the first Adam didn't do. First Adam is our representative, last Adam is representative I'm starting to sort a lot of things out. In Christ, God has accomplished the decisive reversal of the fall and its toxic byproducts. A new Adam has faced... How about this? This is great, the parallelism. A new Adam has faced and obediently endured temptation. Unlike the first Adam, right? Not in a garden sanctuary... Where everything's nice and you got a perfect wife. He had everything going for him. Perfect meals, perfect environment, right? The last Adam wasn't in that kind of sanctuary, but in a hostile desert exile. Mark chapter 1 verse 13, with wild animals. It's even harder. Throughout his life on earth, he lived. This is quoting Matthew 4, 4. This is Jesus compared to first Adam. How about this? By every word that comes from the mouth of God, unlike Adam before him, who should have been living by every word that comes from the mouth of God. That was the problem. He didn't. And Jesus is tempted. And what does he say? He quotes scripture. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Sound familiar? Yeah, that sounds like the first Adam, but... In the right sense. Thereby submitting both his will and his knowledge to his Father. How about Matthew 24, verse 36? I've never really thought about this passage in this regard, but it is rather interesting about Jesus submitting his will and his knowledge to his Father. Matthew 24, 36. Concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. There's one way of expressing your knowledge dependency upon the Father, something that the first Adam didn't do. 
continuing on. His exercise of authority was righteous, not self-serving, but intent always. How about this from John chapter 4 and John chapter 5? Intent always and only on accomplishing the, quote, will of Him who sent me. Last Adam, Jesus. He was announced by God's angel and confessed even by demons as the Holy One of God. Luke one thirty five, Mark one twenty four. Obviously, his relationship with the Father is uniquely intimate. Matthew eleven twenty seven, John seventeen. And of him, God says, "This is my beloved Son, with whom I'm well pleased." Matthew three seventeen. What a contrast. That's why I like to talk about and, and talk about whenever I can the Bible really being a, a tale of two Adams. Tale not in the fictitious sense. It's all about the representatives. And then you figure in Israel is, a, is, a, is also referred to as a kind of Adam. And then you start seeing that's rather interesting. They're also referred to as a son. So you've got the first Adam somewhat like them, different, but someone like them. You have Israel, a son, also referred to as a, as a kind of Adam. Tested, failed, tested, failed. And then you have the son, Jesus. Tested, succeeded. Redemption, restoration. And the Bible becomes more graspable, more understandable. Now let's turn again at least for a moment or two, to that image of God, knowledge, righteousness, holiness. Knowledge, righteousness, holiness. In redemption, restoration of knowledge, righteousness, holiness. These three aspects of our identity as the creaturely image of God roughly correspond to three categories of leaders in Old Testament Israel. Prophets, priests, and kings. If you've been a Christian very long, you realize that Christians talk about Jesus as having three offices. He's a prophet. He's a priest. He's a king. Well, in the Old Testament, you have prophets. You have priests. You have kings. Johnson's going to make the argument, I think persuasively so, that when you look at this this image of God being righteousness, holiness. What was the other one? Righteousness, holiness, I have to look down. Knowledge. There seems to be somewhat of a correspondence. Prophet, priest, and king. Knowledge, righteousness, holiness. It's worth thinking about. Prophets spoke God's truth, summoning His people and their established leaders summoning the priests, the kings, and elders to face reality as God defines it. So prophets did. To face reality as God defines it. Kings and judges were responsible to reflect on God's authority, His right to order His servants' lives according to His perfect justice. Priests entered into God's holy presence bringing sacrifices to remove pollution and affect reconciliation, to establish a relationship with, of intimacy and blessing between the Lord and His wayward servants. The New Testament's witness to Jesus as the apex of mediation between creation and Creator affirms His fulfillment of each of these offices. 
prophet, Acts 3.22, Hebrews 1, 1 and 2, John 1, 1 and following, king, Acts 2.30-36, and priest, Hebrews 7. This is why, again, Christians now for a long time have acknowledged those offices. And it may be, wouldn't want to push it too much, it's those offices are there and he fulfills those offices. We know that's true. Prophet, priest, and king. Because it's all driving to restoring the in God's image original creation. Because we have righteousness, holiness, and knowledge. Interesting to think about. We're not looking at specific redemption texts because the Bible talks about a lot about redemption. Um, I'm just focusing tonight just on the, the, the restoration, um, putting things back the way they should be, but in a better sense um, of divine image. Uh, we're not going to take the time to look at all the redemption texts, but it's, it's, it's freeing, it's, it's restoring, it's saving. So we could talk about justification and sanctification and all those other things. But let's move on now and let's end finally, with number four, that fourth kind of pillar, and that would be consummation. Consummation. A little bit of history first. And by the way, whether you realize it or not, the consummation is the part you're waiting for. Okay? Um, this, is, this is what we're longing for and, and eager for. What, what's been done by Christ has been done finished, complete, resurrected, ascended. And the way the Bible speaks, that puts everything in completed form. It's as as good as done, and so the Bible speaks of our glorification in past tense. But why don't I feel good? Why isn't my life just filled with happiness? Why is it just more and more brokenness? Well, because... While there's been redemption, and, and redemption's been accomplished, fulfillment has been made, no work left to be done by Christ, we're, we're waiting for consummation. We're, we're, we're waiting for it to be actualized, if you will. Theologians have a hard time explaining this sometimes because the Bible clearly teaches both that it's finished and yet we're waiting. And so they've, they've come up with, with ways of saying it. And they say, already, not yet. Yeah, because... You're already glorified, Romans chapter 8, but you're not yet glorified. But there's got to be a way to capture that it's done. It's not based upon your efforting. Christ has already done it. Glorified, already not yet. It's helpful because it represents the biblical data the right way. We're not waiting for something more for God to accomplish. It's already been accomplished, but we're waiting for it to become our experience with Christ's return. So consummation. The realization... That the last days foretold by Israel's prophets, because the prophets talked about the last days, had dawned with the incarnation, ministry, and death and exaltation of God's Son as Messiah, did not lead the apostles, even though all that's done, it didn't lead the apostles to conclude that God's history-long campaign to recapture His own kingdom and to eradicate His enemies had reached its ultimate objective. So even though Jesus' work is totally done, that didn't lead the apostles, is what he's saying, to say, all right, nothing else. Let's just pretend 
Your life still stinks. We'll just keep telling you it doesn't. Because this is how it ends. No, that's not how the apostles dealt with it. And Jesus' parables, especially the tares sown among the wheat and the servants entrusted with minas, told a different story. Matthew 13, Luke 19 specifically. Even when the Messiah had been vindicated by resurrection and had bestowed the gift of the Spirit on His community of believers, which He's done, the long-suffering God, here's the key, the long-suffering God would still delay the day of final sifting, prolonging rebels' opportunity to repent, a la 2 Peter 3.9. See, he's waiting. And here's where it gets fascinating, and I'm thankful for the way Johnson teases this out for us. Because you're suffering now. And in one sense, you shouldn't be. Because the work of Christ is done. Why? Well, at least in part, because of the long-suffering nature of God, still being patient with the rebels who were causing part of your pain. That delay also entails, however, believers' ongoing struggle against their own sin and and suffering in the midst of a sin-cursed world, although in a real and significant sense, those in Christ have entered the new creation and put on the new Adam and His righteousness, holiness, and truth. I mean, in a very real sense, 2 Corinthians 5.17, I mean, it's, it's, it's about you, it's true of you, and it's true of you now. They cannot and do not claim to have reached sinless perfection. Philippians chapter 3. John chapter 1. Nor are they immune to the sufferings common to the present sin-cursed order. In fact, and he's talking about the they, he's talking about the us. Their identity as members of Christ's new creation order now exposes them to intensified, even violent opposition from the enemies of the king. Christians' present experience of the regenerating and sanctifying Spirit of God who who restores the created order only serves to whet their appetite, to whet our appetite for the complete recreation yet to come. This is Romans 8, Romans 8, 23. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. We're waiting for consummation. We're not waiting for redemption, we're waiting for consummation. Achievement of the purpose of perfection, of which Paul wrote in Colossians 1.28, still awaits the day of presentation. When he restores all things, Acts 3.21. We've tasted the first fruits, but we're still waiting to be satisfied. You know 1 John chapter 3, if you've been a Christian very long. 1 John 3, 2 says this, Beloved, we are God's children now. That's redemption. Perfect work of Christ, already done. And what we will be has not yet appeared. Oh, that's consummation talk. But we know, redemption talk, 
tied to consummation talk. That when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is, and everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies Himself as He is pure. First John 3, verses 2 to 3. I'll stop there but and, and, and cease with the quotations of Dennis Johnson. But consummation is the not yet part of the already part of redemption. And if we don't know that, um, you're going to be a dis- dissatisfied, ill-informed... Um, I mean, in the worst sense, this is what happens sometimes in the charismatic movement because there's no distinction between the already and the not yet. Uh, There's no distinction between the redemption and the consummation. And so you have to live kind of in denial because you actually are sick, but you say you're not sick because you can't because the Bible says you are not. But that's not what the Bible says because there's a difference between the already completed work of Christ that guarantees things so much so that therefore it speaks in terms of them being done. But there's enough biblical data like the 1 John 3 passage like the Romans 8 passage, as well as others, that, that uh, not to mention Revelation and the end of the end of the end with no more tears, there's enough data to have us develop a way of putting this and saying, you know what, the Bible teaches already, not yet. The Bible teaches redemption, which is different from, though inseparably in linked, to consummation. And so we're waiting. We're waiting for, for, for resurrected bodies. It's not now. In light of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. So we've got to have a category. Sometimes we don't have a category for consummation when it all becomes realized. It's important that we have a place for that. Well, I do have one more quotation because I'm the quote man tonight. Um, oh, by the way, Dallas, here's the book you get. Okay, and if you want to trade it in for another uh, book that costs $12.30, maybe there is a cash value. Um, but Biblical Theology in the Life of the Church by Michael Lawrence, super helpful book dealing with these kinds of issues that we've been talking about. Biblical Theology, how does it all fit together? And maybe a good final quotation from the ultimate quote meister um, amongst all... Um, Baptistic types uh, and even Presbyterians, and that's Charles Spurgeon. Um, so if you're going to quote someone other than the Bible, uh, Spurgeon is a good one to quote. So we'll quote Spurgeon on how we can end this whole thing, drama of redemption. Somehow it is all related to Christ in light of Ephesians 1. And if your understanding of the Bible is not related to Christ or your teaching is not related to Christ, somehow there's a problem. The ever so quotable Charles Haddon Spurgeon. Don't you know, young man, he's writing to preachers, don't you know, young man, that from every town and every village and every hamlet in England, wherever it may be, there is a road to London? How many of you have heard this quote? Oh, we've got we to get with the program here. I've got to start quoting Spurgeon every week. Um, Do you not know, young man, that from every town and every village and every hamlet in England, wherever it may be, there is a road to London? So from every text of Scripture, there is a road to Christ. And my dear brother, your business as a preacher is, when you get to a text, to say now, what is the road to Christ? I have never found a text that had not got a road to Christ in it. 
And if ever I do find one, I will go over hedge and ditch. But I would get at my master, for the sermon cannot do any good unless there is a savor of Christ in it.